From Equality Arizona, you're listening to Ask Smart People Smart Questions, a new podcast about big ideas and the big issues that affect the LGBTQ community. We're excited to launch the podcast with a panel discussion recorded live at the Tempe Public Library about drag culture and drag history. Each month we'll release two discussions on different topics, one recorded live at the Tempe Public Library like this, and one recorded as a podcast bonus episode. I don't think we could have had a better topic to kick us off, given the political climate around drag right now. There are three bills in the Arizona legislature right now that exist to ban or limit drag, and that's not what this conversation is about as such, but it exists in that context. Our panelists are absolutely incredible. Marshall Shore, Michelle Miranda Thorstad, Felicia Fifi Minor, Freddie Prince Charming. I was so honored to be able to facilitate this conversation between all of them, and I was honored to be able to host it at the Tempe Public Library, which, like I say in the recording, is really one of my favorite places around. If you're interested in coming to a future event for the series, check out our website, equalityarizona.org event. But for now, let's get the recording started. I think let's get started. Everyone on the panel knows each other better than they know me or than I know any of them. And so I have a bunch of bios written down here, but it just feels weird to read people's bios when they all know each other. So I'm going to ask maybe if each of you can introduce yourself, then we have that in the audio and everyone can know a little bit about you. I'll just say, I'm Gene Woodbury. I'm the Interim Executive Director of Equality Arizona, and that's a pretty recent role, and it's been really interesting. I get to do things like this, and I love it. I get to be around really incredibly interesting and knowledgeable people and pretty people, and it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'll, I'll open Freddie, the right? stage to each of you. Um, I'm Freddie Prince Charming. I've been uh, performing since about 2005, so I'm starting to hit that 20-year mark. Just, mm, I'm inching up on it. Um, I completely forgot what I put in my bio. No idea who I am. Um, I'm, it's Identity the, crisis. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you have a, you have a game where you have to like describe mm-hmm. things in one-syllable words, and all of a sudden you've forgotten every one-syllable word you've ever known. You just, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I'm considered a veteran drag performer here in Arizona and around. Uh, not too many kings hang on for as long as I have. Um, so I've been around a hot minute. I've uh, held state, city, national, and regional titles. I'm, I'm a former Mr. Phoenix Pride. I serve on uh, several boards, um, including the MCSO LGBTQ Advisory Board. We actually wrote the, um, the policy for basically what happens when we have uh, like trans or LGBTQ, but more specifically trans inmates that come in uh, during intake. Um, I am a part of Drag Story Hour. I'm on both the local board and the national board. And I... I guess I consider myself also kind of an educator. Um, I have done uh, several conferences. Um, I'm the co-creator of How to Be a Trans Ally and um, From Allies to Accomplices, Leaping into Action, which are both like workshops, presentations um, on how to be a better ally to the trans community. Uh, I'm Michelle McDonald-Florstad. My pronouns are she, and I am the executive director of Drag Story Hour Arizona. 
I also serve on the, our parent organization, Drag Story Hour, as a board member. And I have a background in libraries. I actually was, I became aware of Drag Story Hours through my time working at the public library and doing story hours and seeing this phenomenal event. And eventually it led me to meet Freddie and Felicia and just this great drag community that otherwise I probably wouldn't be aware of. Very good. My name is Marshall Shore and I am known as the Hip Historian. I have been in Arizona, moved here a little over 23 years ago, and promptly heard how there was no history here. I know, but you know, that is indeed not true. We have so much history. And so really, I was working in a library in South Phoenix where this had a rich oldest of the community, and that got me looking at Arizona through stories. And so that's still what I continue today. I'm now I am the hip historian. I also do a variety of tours, lectures. I have a Thursday night Arizona History Happy Hour um, that is all virtual. We've been doing that for we're going into our third season. We have um, tonight I am playing the role of the project manager for the Arizona LGBT plus history project, which is a collaboration between Phoenix Pride, ASU Libraries, and myself. Um, utilizing my library experience and what was fascinating was finding people saying oh there's no history here mm. oh my gosh and just wait till you see what we've discovered in terms of drag history for Arizona um, I'm in the process of writing a book about Phoenix LGBTQ history which has been fraught with so many challenges mm-hmm. more than just COVID <laughs> so that's a whole conversation in itself <laughs> Wow. And last but not least, I'm just here to be pretty. Um, So I'm Felicia Fifi Minor, and I have been doing drag since about 2007. Um, I am a part of Drag Story Hour Arizona, as well as on the board for Drag Story Hour, the national headquarters. Uh, What else? Uh, We have a podcast called Let's Have a Fifi. And we've been doing that for over 10 years. Um, it's okay. We, we know. <laughs> I know everything. I don't know who I am or what uh, I Where we discuss everything from art to politics to God knows what. Um, but um, we live stream every Wednesday at 8 p.m. And I'm also uh, more recently focused on putting the audio as a podcast so you can watch us. Or sometimes I wouldn't recommend it, but uh, you can listen to us. So this is good that this is the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I do love podcasts because then no one has to see me. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, the context for this event, and I think it's really amazing. We've got so many people from Drag Story Hour, so many people with library experience, and here we are in a library. The context for this event is really connected to all of that. Uh, I think I first started thinking about the need for something like this last summer when I got a call from a reporter saying, hey, did you see that uh, some senators in the Arizona legislature have proposed this idea of banning drag shows? Mm-hmm. And I said, you're the first person telling me about this, and now I've, I've got to think and figure out where this is coming from. And... I looked into it, and what I realized is about a week before that, a week or two before that, there had been a pretty violent protest of a family-friendly drag show in Texas. And immediately after that, a Texas lawmaker said, 
I'm going to introduce some kind of law to criminalize drag performers or people taking kids to drag shows. He didn't really have a very fleshed out idea. I don't think any of them do. But very quickly after that, we got this proposal in Arizona. Now it's a new legislative session and the legislature has introduced three different kinds of drag bans. This isn't the, the conversation to go into what those policies are because I think that's actually a mistake. Like, these have different ways they function, but it's, it's almost a mistake to even talk about it from the standpoint of the legal structure. What we're looking at is these drag bans as something that are a direct, like, legitimization of these really violent protests at family-friendly drag events. It, it feels pretty new because I can look at that history and it's like a year to get from here's a protest to here's three different bills proposed in the Arizona legislature alone. But, you know, my question really is, is this actually new? And I want to go to Marshall first and say, what's kind of the legal history around this idea? I can think of like anti-cross-dressing laws, drag bans. Is this new or is there a long history of it? And what does that look like? Um, there's been a long history of, I mean, really the first drag that we have in Arizona shows up in, I think, 1894 in Tombstone is the first drag queen on stage. And um, moving on from there, it was all over Arizona. And one of the things I think that's interesting is performers tended to almost get a pass. They could perform sometimes. But then if they were caught on the street, thrown in jail, asked to basically either go to jail or leave town, and that has been kind of the history. Um, then you had really in the 40s starting this whole of female impersonators cannot go into bars. And then it was like, well, then it was like, well, they can't be entertainers. And so it's like always trying to have a scapegoat. And so, I mean, and aligning things like um, pickpockets, ne'er-do-wells, and and female impersonators, kind of all in that lump together as bad people. So is it fair to characterize it as something that wasn't just a rule universally applied in all situations, but very contextual? Very contextual. I mean, it was, there was an unwritten rule. Meanwhile, it's like there was, then the liquor board actually said, okay, you cannot have a female impersonator entertaining in your establishment. It still happened, shockingly. <laughs> what? I know. Shocking. And, you know, for Felicia, for Freddie, you've both been involved in drag for 15, close to 20 years. I want to know from your perspective if this moment feels like an escalation or just part of the overall experience that you've had. First of all, I would like to point out that with a lot of these historical like rules and laws and things, mm -hmm. it always has to do with female impersonators. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> there's never Book a drag. there's never anything that has to do with women who impersonate men. Very rarely, that's there, but it's it's and this is sort of a, a general thing. It's not usually thought of as like the the bigger of the issue because of course men in dresses are far more dangerous far more dangerous I don't know personally I'm I'm not 
at all surprised that this is happening again. Um, you know, Arkansas just had the, <laughs> their bill went to um, their legislature and it passed, I think, 26 to 3 or something. Jeez. Something ridiculous. Um, and it's very similar to what we, we have going on here. And I, I don't find it surprising. Um, is it... I, I think that over the last few years, um, since about, I'm going to say January-ish of about 2017, um, I feel like certain groups of people um, have been essentially given permission to go ahead and be bigots, essentially, with little fear of consequence. And I think that since then, I think things have been escalating. And this is, it, it's, this is not the last time we're going to see this. It's going to continue. Um, I think every time it gets shot down, there's going to be another one. Uh, maybe they'll reword it slightly. But is it an escalation? I think yes, but I think it's also just par for the course. I see. And you mentioned, like, specific groups of people. Is this something that is, like, a, a trend, or is it just specific groups of people that feel more legitimized somehow? I think that, just in, in, from, from, from my point of view, from what I've seen, when I say specific groups of people, I'm basically talking about the right-wing conservatives who... Before January-ish of 2017, um, were still homophobic, transphobic, racist. They were xenophobic. They were they were all of these things, mm -hmm. but they were I think far more quiet about it. Um, and then, given license, they were just oh well, we don't have to be quiet about it anymore. Have you been seeing something pretty similar, Felicia? Um, so. I experienced pretty much the same thing that Freddie experienced. Um, I had gone to, you know, of course, prides where people have the big signs or random people walk up to you and be, like, screaming in your face, and you're like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and then it just kind of fades away, right? Mm -hmm. um, so 2017, start getting, like, you know, like messages in your inbox that kind of read that not so nicely, and you wonder, okay, well block and then another one appears and you wonder okay is it something that I'm doing or or no uh, more recently though in the last year as things amp up politically um, I feel like I have been targeted personally by the white nationalist party because they have come to things like we are um, host for sex trivia um, at a bar and so um, and we also participate in drag story are keeping them completely separate not discussing either event or whatever and um they they followed me in particular um and found evidence of it and i wasn't it didn't like knock on my door until i started getting calls and emails from reporters that said you may want to be careful the white nationalist party is following you and they sent me a link to where they were discussing everything that I was doing everything including dissecting my name and saying that I was 
uh, chasing after pedophilia. So oh for me, um, like attending this event, I, when I first started drag, I did it for the fun, for the entertainment, for the smiles and, and all that. And now I'm asking someone when I attend an event, what is the statue of um, how we're taking care of security? Um, what is the emergency exits? I never thought of that when I first started this. And to think that my family might be in danger, drag never affected my family. And to think that my family is in danger now makes it, like, so, it, it, I would like for people to spend their tax dollars doing something else, like putting money into maybe education. Uh, maybe. Maybe <laughs> I can get a better retirement. Uh, I mean, figure things out. Like, there's better things to be doing. Michelle, you have a really specific viewpoint because of your involvement in Drag Story Hour, AZ, starting that organization. Since the time that you started it, have you seen an increase in negative responses to it? Well, drag the concept of drag storytellers starts to really boom in 2015. It's often credited to Michelle T and Writer Productions San Francisco. And it's a really interesting phenomenon that I've been wanting to track because we have people claiming that they started in Canada or they started in small town Michigan and those types of things. But when I was working for a public library, it was just all over the place. The American Library Association told libraries you should support Drag Story Hour, Drag Story Time, um, School Library Journal, all of these publications that public libraries usually respect. Mm -hmm. And then you have me working at a, for the largest county <coughs> library, um, having a hard time doing an LGBTQ plus story hour, which is a rainbow story hour. I had to completely take out any mention of same-sex couples in my advertisements. I had to tone down on rainbows because that was too gay. Um, and this was in 2017. So I actually started my first drag, specifically drag story hour in the summer of 2017. I funded it on my own, found a drag queen to do the storytelling. and. With that type of event being a, a private event, but open to people we invited and things of that sort, I believe we got over 30 people. And so that's a good event. Public libraries, if 50 people sign up, you can expect 20. And then when I tried to officially do a drag story hour through a library that serves a large area of um, Arizona, all of a sudden my professional background meant nothing. I couldn't make that decision. And uh, the storytellers had to go through, I guess, have their MLIS to be actually reading stories, which I didn't even have. <laughs> so, um, and then I ended up leaving the public library then in 2017. Um, thankfully, I found David Boyles, our president, in 2018, and he brought up the idea of doing it. It was supposed to be a one-time thing. And in February 2019, we did our first story hour. We were hit with a protest. At the very beginning? At the very beginning. We had people tracking the event. We actually were informed of it because somebody who um, 
escorts for the family clinics, the women's clinics, went ahead and was like, hey, actually this event has popped up on the radar. We were tracking these groups. They are going to show up at your event. And sure enough, they showed up, um, tried to ambush the story hour. Thankfully, we were doing that as another private event opened to registrations. So we were able to say, no, this is a private room. You're not able to come in. But um, we have that protest there. And this was 2019. So throughout the year, when we're planning the events, we got regular protests. We had an incident where Mesa Community College had to revoke the invitation with the library because the president, who is no longer the president um, of Mesa Community College, said no. And then they, the group that was organizing, which has disbanded because I think they couldn't cooperate with one another, um, they went ahead and they tracked us down to Scottsdale Community College. They followed us there and started taking pictures of children and videos and things of that sort, which for a parent is really scary. When 2020 hit, all of us went in virtually, so... We have our social media locked down for the purpose of avoiding trolling comments and things of that sort. So the public doesn't see it. And that's good because the queer community gets faced with this on a daily basis. So we don't want people coming to our social media page or our website and that's supposed to be something really happy um, and seeing that. But what's happening in the background is we're filtering all of these comments, repent, you're gonna burn in hell. Just today, I got an email with the subject line, I'm interested in attending, and then it goes to the the body of the email. I'm interested in attending you burning in hell or something of that sort. Oh my God. And I was like, okay. Well, <laughs> that's lovely. I guess I'll see you there. Um, and so that's been a regular thing since 2019. Now, for the last three years, the group that was initially at that first 2019 story hour, they were busy focusing on other stuff, you know, pressing other groups. But since they've successfully, uh, I forget the bill that was passed um, last year that made it more difficult for people to get abortions, since they feel like they were successful in that, they are now turning their attention to us. And so that was something I wanted to ask mm-hmm. about because you mentioned that someone who does clinic defense, mm-hmm. clinic escorting, was able to identify the same groups because yes. they have to monitor specific groups and they were able to see these people are shifting their focus to you. Yes. Is that what's happening? Are they moving from that issue to this now that they feel like they have some success? I do feel like they are, since they have some more time to focus on us, they want to give that much energy into coming to our events. And that would be their ultimate goal. They want to see these bills get passed and to make it so that children cannot be involved and exposed to drag. And they make drag seem like an adult thing. But really, when we're in the story hour, it's 100% for children. Well, that's... I think the thing I want to step back from this conversation and talk about is, you know, this is a disruption that's happening to something that exists separately from whatever these people are against or whatever laws they're trying to pass. Mm -hmm. There's 
a long history, there's a really established culture, and I want to talk a little bit about that, and I want to ask Felicia first what your experience has been discovering drag and getting involved in drag, because you're saying, here's this awful situation that's happening to you now, and you still care about this, Mm -hmm. and it's still important to you and meaningful to you, so how did you get there? What has it meant to you? Oh boy, that's a heavy question. Uh, let's see. Uh, I started drag in 2007 as a Halloween, which is a queen born on Halloween. And it was terrible. When I tell you it was terrible, believe me. But if you want to look, it's on my Facebook still. Uh, and so at first it was just to be fun. It was just to be, you know, like dress up on Halloween. Um, but I first discovered... Um, drag on like my first date with my husband and so we went to this bar called Wildcard and um, I said to myself I want to do that and so there was a bit of freedom of expression Um, there's uh, I feel like there's like an extension of you that develops when you develop this character this alter ego that you can be because you know you live your day to day life and you're like and then you get to you know put on the makeup you put on the lashes you put on the hair you put on the dress and you get to be someone else and just for a moment in time you're making other people happy and you're being happy right alongside them um so for me it's like an extension it's a creative expression um i do different faces as well as freddie does fabulous faces don't let them tell you anything different and um so there's there's a chance to be creative there's a chance to to grow personally um also there's a chance to make money so um um (laughs) some money like you heard the little ching ching in the bottom of your purse that's that's drag money um But holding on, uh, I feel like it's an extension of me, something that I created. It's the world that I live in. Um, It's a chance for me to offer to someone else an escape, as well as offering an escape for myself. Right? Freddie, how do you see it? Oh, boy. Um, So I was actually exposed to drag very early. Um, I basically grew up in Thailand and in Pattaya there is a phenomenal bar with a phenomenal show and for the life of me now the name of it is poof gone but the entire cast is made up of essentially trans women lady boys the whole nine yards and they go all out like it and my dad was taking me to this so I was exposed to drag very very young um as far as performing I guess I probably started technically in high school. I was cast as Riff in West Side Story. I was the lion and the whiz. I was always playing male roles. Go figure. And when I you know, graduated, I moved. I did some community theater, all that jazz. And then I moved to Tucson in 2001. And I remember going to Tucson Pride and seeing my first drag king. And I'm, I'm a theater kid. And I was watching this king up on stage and I went... Huh. I can do that. I think I can do that. Mm-hmm. 
So it was a few years after that that I actually managed to do it, but it was through drag and the the troupe that I was performing with um, in Tucson at the time when I got started, I met my first out trans man, which really helped me because up until then, there was always something, but I wasn't sure, I didn't have a word for it, and then suddenly the light bulb, bing, went off. Of course, it was still after that, but, you know, it was like, oh, so much is making sense now, I get it, but I've been able to use drag as a creative outlet, I've been able to use drag to give back to my community, I've been able to use drag to push my own creative limits, and now, after almost 20 years of doing this, I still do it to entertain, I still do it for the creative aspect, but now, in this political climate, I almost, part of me still does it sort of out of spite. Mm-hmm. Be like, I, I guess I, you're not going to make me stop what I'm doing, because the kids that see me at Drag Story Hour, you know love being able to see us at Drag Story Hour. They love that connection. They love seeing people that they can relate to and they're like, oh, boys can wear sparkles and boys can wear heels and I don't have to identify as this and I can be whatever I want and they love that. And the people that are trying to tell us that we can't do that or you know, that we need to be afraid whenever we step out of our house and drag or that we need to be afraid whenever we go to a bar, at this point, no. I'm, I should probably be a little more afraid than I am, but I can't let them win. So I'm still doing it to give back, and I'm still doing it to raise awareness, and now it's just more hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I agree with that. Michelle, you told me a lot of the experience of getting Drag Story Hour Z off the ground, (laughs) but from the standpoint of the challenges... What have been some of the really rewarding things for you from participating in that? Um, So, story hours, the reason that it's so great to have drag story hours specifically is because story hours serve as a tool for early literacy. If you do not teach a child to learn to love reading at an early age, there's a really good chance they're not going to read as an adult, and that's when you start getting issues with adult literacy or school and it's an important staple so I love to see children just immersed in the storytelling and being so excited to hear a new story every single day so when I left public libraries that broke my heart because I thought I'd never do another story hour again and coming back into I know coming back into (laughs) this drag story hour you get all of that you get that amazement that wonder of going into these worlds But then you get this other aspect. So Felicia, for example, always brings out the empowerment in at least one child (laughs) who will be in the front (laughs) row. Uh, She calls them, oh, you're the boss of the story hour. Mm -hmm. And they are given that chance to know that they, they're given that space to know that they have a voice and they can point out things in the story. Freddie, one of my favorite memories of you, there's, there's so many stories I can say, but one of my favorite memories is of a, a little boy whose favorite color is pink. 
and he has a little tiny bow tie. Oh, this you kid. Know? Oh, yes. yes. A little tiny pink bow tie, and he's just looking at Freddie. You can tell that he's very shy, but he's looking at Freddie with this sense of, like, that is wonderful. Were you wearing, like, glitter? I think I, you were I, wearing sequins. I was probably so, wearing something sparkly. And Freddie Very brings, out of character. <laughs> Freddie brings up this... <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he has like a whole cabinet of bow ties and they get to have this conversation with one another and there's been times too I we had a child who identified as male was able to wear a beautiful Cinderella type gown to a story hour because that's the space that they have for that just being able to see these realizations these clicks or just having families that aren't your hetero cis white wealthy suburban families coming into a story hour and seeing themselves in the stories that we're reading because we focus on a whole range of communities in our books that is a mission of ours that's a goal of ours being able to have those spaces for them is just so rewarding and that's I think why we all <laughs> wake up in the mornings. I have them waking up at like what five in the morning <sighs> to put on drag face yeah. <laughs> and walk ourselves or drive ourselves to Tucson, Bisbee, Flagstaff, anywhere, any rural library. If you want to invite us, we'll come. <laughs> um, it's just worth it. I think this is context that people are really missing. I, I have a an audience question that's, you know, can we talk about the potential repercussions of these bills passing? And that's important, and that's a good conversation to have. But I think when we get really caught up in talking about those bills, we do people a disservice in terms of not letting them know all of this context. And so, Marshall, I think the other context is that people just have no idea, like you're saying, that this goes back to, like, 1894 in Arizona. Can you tell us that story? Well, I mean... One of the things I do want... So when I decided to become a librarian, mm-hmm. little... I mean, here I am, this kid in Indiana, small farm town, and one of the local drag queens in Indianapolis, um, Vicky um, Vici Lane, I was like, Vicky, I'm going to go to library school. I'm going to be a librarian. And she's like, oh. she's like, you know, I love my time at the library reading stories to the kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, this person that I actually called a friend was like, stamp of approval, drag me to approval, there I am going to library school. (laughs) So, and did that. And so that's one of the things I love about libraries is the fact that it's a place for ideas. I mean, kind of the whole idea is that if there's something in a library that doesn't offend you, that library is doing a really bad job because they shouldn't just have one ideology. It should be a house for ideas, and that is the goal. And so that has been, I think, one of the tenets of libraries is really from the early days. And so what I think is beautiful is the fact that we're actually having this discussion in a library. Yes. Having, talking about ideas, talking about people, and allowing them to be their authentic selves. But, I mean, when you look at the history, I mean, 1894, there was... Um, gosh, that was William Gauze, who was a drag queen and a minstrel show in Tombstone. And so he was known to, he would basically do his whole bit and come out and basically, ta-da, 
I'm a guy. Oh my gosh, the audience would. <laughs> and this happened across the state. I mean, not not just Tombstone, but, and that's the thing is, it's always part of a pr- progressing on. But then you would have, I mean, there's a young man in Globe who was caught wearing women's clothing, and was detained, thrown in jail. We don't know what happened to him. There was a guy in Yuma in the '50s that was basically said, you know, your chance, your choices is go to jail, dress as a woman, or we're gonna or get out of town right now. And so there has been always been this dichotomy between that stage presence and real life. Uh, when you look at the history of Julian Elting, who was one of the first Hollywood celebrities, it was a birdcage moment. He would find a reason to suddenly show up from being a man to having to dress as a woman to the hilarity. He did he did theater presentations, a lot several of them in Tucson. You had Ray Bourbon, who was a drag queen who used her voice. She's got multiple albums out. Um, one of the earliest bars we can place in Phoenix was a lesbian bar in South Phoenix. Kay's Happy Landing Buffet. And <laughs> Kay, I know, I love that as a lesbian bar name. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so <laughs> Kay had been a musician for Ray. And so Ray performed a lot at her bar. Hmm. And so there's this really kind of rich history. And then in the 50s, you had local performers going across the state, going to places like Globe and putting on a drag show. Um, I think the audience was probably very different at that point. It was very much more seen as entertainment for everybody to come and enjoy it. And then that's also when you start seeing in the 40s, 50s, this criminalization of drag performers. We can laugh at them, but oh my gosh, we don't want to be around. Or then, again, in that real-life moment. Um, when you talk about even drag kings, um, you know, here in Arizona, we have Elvis herself. Yep. I mean, Lee Crow is now in San Francisco doing an amazing job at Oasis, doing Dandy, a really amazing drag king review. But you also then have those other stories of... so. Um, basically, during COVID, we were able to raise funds for a gender pioneer, Nikolai Duralin. So Nikolai, who was born in Russia, got himself to Chicago, got himself a, co- a cushy government job, got himself two wives, one divorce, and tuberculosis. And like so many people, he came to Arizona for his health. Well, you know, that didn't really go so well for him because he wound up passing away. And as they're ready for a burial, they discovered he was a woman. And that story went viral, top of the top of the paper, above the fold, from Bisbee to Australia. There were cases decades later where it's like they would find some women dressed as men in a bar and be like, oh, this reminds us of that case of Nikolai Dorelin dressing as a man. He was supposed to never have his secret found out. Um, He had an agreement with his wife that if he was to pass away, that she was the only one to write him for burial. But that obviously did not happen, so that's how we have this story of someone who was living, and people were shocked to find out that indeed lived his life as a man, as his authentic self. And so I'm so excited that we were able to raise funds, get a headstone, at the cemetery to the point where I've actually had people track me down and say, I want to show you a photo. And it was a photo of 
Six folks gather around his headstone with fresh flowers planted in front of it. And I was like, that's exactly why we did this for that moment. Um, having friends who said, you know, thank you for doing this because my parents feel by me saying I'm trans, I'm doing it because it's a trend. But I can now oh. show that trans is not just a new thing. It's mm-hmm. been around. Yeah, we're not new. So, I mean, you call it two-spirit, you call it a variety of things, but we've always been there. I think that's something I really want to ask about, is you know, drag doesn't necessarily have to be something that is, is done by LGBT people or in the LGBT community, but it's also like historically very intertwined with LGBT history and the community, and it can be very central to the community, and if we look at things like the different definitions of you know female impersonators, that kind of language, there's a lot there that I think shifts over time, how we talk about it, how we think about it, but is also very stable in the way that you're saying. So do you see that this is something that's very intertwined? And what are some of the nuances to that that people might not know? I mean, I think it's a cyclical thing where, I mean, it's kind of like this adoration or hatred is in a cycle. And so eventually this will go away and something else will replace it. And so, and that's kind of the way it's been. I mean, you could see that wave happening in the 20s and then and when the liquor board said, oh, you can't have drag queens in your establishment. So it's only a matter of time until, you know, something else will catch their fancy, whether it's abortion, whether it's drag, whether it's whatever the next thing is. And so it's just a process. We will get through this. Uh, We have gotten through this before. And that's the thing is, as a community, we have to stand united and be a front for everyone to allow themselves to be themselves. What do you think it is about drag that has been so important for queer people for so long? Um, I think, like Felicia was saying, I think it's a lot of that creativity and just that ability to express yourself. I mean, when you take a look at drag in other cultures, I mean, like in Thai or in Japan or in Shakespeare's era, they couldn't have women on stage, so that was their only option was to have effeminate men portraying the women. And so it is not a new thing. We have, we can date it here, but across the globe, it's been happening for eons and will continue to happen for eons. You had, actually a few of you had a real response when I said it's not just something for queer people. We have a very queer table. (laughs) And so Freddie, I want to ask you about that reaction. Just what were, what was your thought when I said that? Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm very much. It's not just for queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a tendency to, just as as a community in general, be like, no, no, drag is ours. <laughs> Nobody else gets to have drag. This is just <laughs> when I, I don't watch RuPaul's Drag Race at all. I've never seen a single episode. Don't care. But. I did meet Maddie Morphosis before Maddie Morphosis was on Drag Race. And 
I remember when they announced her as a cast member on Drag Race, how everybody blew up because Maddie Morphosis is a cisgender heterosexual man. Out of drag, he is very sweet. His, I don't think they're married, partner mm-hmm. is also a, she's a cisgender heterosexual woman. And together they are a cisgender heterosexual couple. And when she made it on Drag Race, everybody just had a, they flipped out because no, 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 we can't have that. You know, he's taking up space. He can't do, but the whole point of it is we, we've said forever that all drag is valid and anybody can do drag. But then all of a sudden when something like that happens, no, 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 not like that. That's not what we meant. All drag is valid as long as you're queer. Drag is for everyone as, as long as you're queer. And I'm like, why? I, I don't think that, like, it, it, as far as, as cisgender drag queens, I don't think that gay men have the monopoly on tapping into their feminine side and throwing on a pair of heels and a dress. I, I know several uh, cisgender heterosexual women who perform as drag kings. I don't think that you know, queer women or trans men have the monopoly on being able to be masculine on stage. And I, I, I understand why we are very protective of drag in the queer community. I absolutely understand that. You know, for many of us, it really helped with awakening our queer selves, with understanding our own identities regarding gender, sexuality, and everything. But I don't think that we should be policing it. I think that once we start gatekeeping things like that, it just opens it up and it, you know, it's, it's treat people how you want to be treated. And gatekeeping anything like that is just, it, it, it's a recipe for disaster. And either we want to accept it and make everything accepting and, and welcoming, or we shut it down and we gatekeep. And if we start doing that, then we're no better than the folks that are trying to tell us that we can't do this. Right. And then it becomes this checklist of, right. like, okay, are you queer enough? Right. To be able to be on stage. Are you bisexual or are you just, are you heteroflexible? Because right. where does that fall in <laughs> right. that spectrum? Where, where are you on the Kenzie scale? Right. How many and, men exactly have you kissed? Like, it's, and it's right. like, it doesn't, <laughs> it, it, it's. There's no queer card. I just mm, want to make sure that. You know, it's, <laughs> whoever's listening to this It podcast starts getting very <laughs> muddy once we start, you know, yeah. saying Gate- that, that drag is just for, you know, the queer community. Gatekeeping shuts down community. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Felicia, anyone? Do you ha- do you have to do things consciously, not just to avoid gatekeeping, but to open up the gates? Is that something that you think about and build into your work? Yes. Um, I will say that I feel like um, there has been um, some. Um, I want to say an awakening of. Um, BIPOC uh, performers whereas when I first started drag I felt like we were kind of like limited Um, we weren't necessarily the end all be all kind of and if I'm going to say this but if a white entertainer wasn't that entertaining but 
could be available, I felt like that person was chosen over those that were of color and more entertaining. I can say that because I've seen it for myself. But um, I also feel like um, because there was a point where I was going to shut myself down, I was going to like not do this anymore. And somebody came up to me uh, at an event and said, thank you for being visible. And it totally changed my world because I didn't think anybody saw me. Because you start hearing that maybe you're not booked in this, that, and the other, but then you realize that the things that you create for yourselves become the part that makes you different, the part that makes you unique, the part that makes people want to go, what's different about her? What's different about him that I want to be a part of? And so, um, for my perspective, and my perspective only, I'm not a representation of every BIPOC person, but from my perspective, I feel like um, that we've had this little bit more of acceptance, a little bit more of, oh, we'll try her out. And if she's not good, it's because she's not good. Because um, I've had that before. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, for me, that's where I see it. And I also, um, we also see that um, maybe like 2015, we had um, AFAB um, individuals that were trying to express themselves and be a part of our community. And we had this horrible, kind of like the Maddie Morphosis thing that was happening, like women can't be drag queens. And you're like, uh, what? Like, we're doing this because <laughs> we're doing this because of them. So, like, you're gonna close the door and say, like, no, no, sweetheart, you can't come in here. We're we're doing this over here. You're doing that. Like, yeah. And so that's where, like, yeah, you're right. Gatekeeping creates this, like. So then everybody's like, oh well, I don't want to do it either. I think also gatekeeping prevents the evolution of of art because when I started doing drag you had to be if you were a drag king you had to be macho you had to be masculine you had to present a certain way on stage and I didn't do that um there was actually uh there was a king that would often host shows and he would introduce me on the microphone as faggoty freddy Jesus. Every in a time. good way or not? Oh, no. Okay. No. no. It was not it seen as good. Okay. I, because I I was never that super uber macho king. Never was, never will be, not a thing. And I, instead of changing and trying to conform, I was just sort of like, well, I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And if they don't like it, oh, well. You know, I, I want to national competition in evening wear that incorporated a corset which even then and that was in when was that 2019 even then it was still especially at a national pageant for drag kings no way mm-hmm. absolutely not you don't you don't you don't you know they, there's still that that you know you you have to be that more masculine i said no if i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do it my way and there's so much more of that happening and thank goodness because 
if the folks that did things like announced me as Faggity Freddy and, you know, were allowed to have their way this entire time, there wouldn't have been that that evolution into drag artists, however they identify, drag king, drag queen, whatever, to be able to actually do what they're doing. I'm the one that's on the outskirts with a lot of the drag community. I've had the great opportunity of meeting people like Freddie and Felicia who don't play into this gatekeeping and welcome you as an outsider to experience things. They don't make you feel stupid for not knowing what's happening on RuPaul or what have you because I also don't watch that either. (laughs) But this evolution that we're going to where mask identifying people can start showing a more feminine touch is so so much that like people that I love get nervous because they can't wear a girl's shirt which displays one of their favorite fandoms because they're supposed to be macho they're supposed to just do that and that really just leads into this toxic masculinity that we all suffer from Mm. Uh, and it's just as the more we get outside of that gatekeeping of drag the better it is for not only the LGBTQ plus community but to allow others to Come in and join us. It doesn't have to just be for queer people. I think that's something that is really critical to what we were talking about in the first place. Like, it's it's this interesting thing where the way you can play around with gender doesn't have to have anything to do with your identity, but it can also open you up to community and to parts of your identity that you need to express and you need to work out, and it can be something that makes that easier for you. And I I love that balance, that it's not intrinsically about that, but it can be so central to it at the same time. And we have to wrap up, but I wanted to ask all of you, just in this current moment, how are you handling it, and what are your hopes or maybe expectations for the future? So regarding the story hour, we're constantly evolving. We're still a young organization, so we've been learning a lot of things. But we're strategizing to see how we will approach the evolution of these bills. We're also ensuring that our storytellers and volunteers are kept safe, creating policies and such to make sure our attendants are safe. We've always had that, but also our our community. So we're just going to continue to evolve as an organization and meet the challenges as they come and hopefully have some some stuff already situated as they come as well and i know for myself it's like when i talk history there are so many ways and lenses to view history through Mm -hmm. that there is no one this is the only way to see this instance say that again and (laughs) so and that's one of the things i really love and actually i've had friends say you know what we love about what you do is you allow people to tell their story and i think that is over because we all have our own view of how things have happened and we are in this moment. We will persevere. We have persevered in the past, and we will continue to do that. And that's why we are all here together having this conversation mm-hmm. and continuing that so that people know that there's support, mm-hmm. whether they're in a small town doing it for themselves, maybe never even stepping outside the door, right. giving them the courage, <clears throat> and that we will support you and you being yourself. Uh, the future, the future. Um, 
I see us, as Marshall said, getting over this. And maybe people find other things to do, um, like supporting education. I'll say that again, because <laughs> maybe they're listening. But I'm not going to stop what I'm doing, because I know that there's someone like me that is 12 years old and looking and saying, I can do something like this. I can be myself. I don't have to live in some standard that somebody has created for me from birth. And there's the possibilities are endless, but I hope that things remain safe and not so um, with guns coming to children's Mm. events. That's not acceptable. It's traumatizing to children. So therapy is good, but we don't want to force it on children. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm... I'm not planning on stopping what I'm doing anytime soon. I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm still trying to, you know, educate, and I'm still trying to be visible. Um, I'm still doing the drag story hours. I'm still doing the sex trivia because, God forbid, people learn about things. Um, they really need that. Um, they learn geez, a lot. We need it. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and I, but the only thing that's really changed is I'm I'm less concerned about myself than I am about, you know, safety for my family because my kids love going to drag shows. Whenever there's an all-ages show, they're like, oh my God, are we with you that weekend? Do we get to go? Because if they can go, they want to go because they love it. They absolutely love it. And my concern is for their safety. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just a little bit of added, okay, well, if there are protesters or if we hear anything... This is what could potentially happen, so just be aware. We're not going to let anything happen to you guys. Just know that you'll be safe, you know, but it's just that just that added layer. But otherwise, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and pushing through and hoping that at some point people get a damn hobby and find something else to move on to. So we got some audience questions, and a couple of them are sort of like, let's talk back to the the bills, right? Um, one of them just says, can you talk about the possible repercussions of anti-drag bills passing? I think, you know, I don't know if we have a lot of time for that, but the thing I want to say is they're not going to pass in Arizona um, because they're, they're going to get vetoed even if they make it to the governor. So I actually think I, I maybe don't want to spend a whole lot of our time on that. But the other question is basically just saying, here's the argument that people are making, which is, oh, we're not trying to limit drag. We just think drag has a pr- proper place in the world, which is limited. I, I, it's a circular argument. It doesn't really hold up. And, and so, But that's the argument is, well, drag is inherently for adults, so we need to put it into adults-only spaces. I have... Um, so I was actually talking to somebody at work about this. So if we think about this, Do we go to Disneyland and tell everybody that's dressed up not to touch the children and not to hug the children? You don't know who's inside Mickey Mouse. You don't know who Cinderella is. But you allow your child to dance around and sing and be a part of that world. Are you going to go to Disneyland and say, Disney, shut all of this down. We're not going to have this anymore. Because essentially, I'm just a smaller scale of what that is. I don't harm children I raise children and I go home and I'm a a normal normal person (laughs) Uh, 
No one's really done. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my thing is like, please move on. Please discover where you can support education um, and do other things with our valuable tax dollars that we we have. I mean, well, let's talk about that a little bit because someone asked a question that I think is just important. Do you know of any resources, support groups, or places for expression for impoverished trans youth? That's a real thing, right? Mm -hmm. People have a real experience, and that's a real question about a real experience. Uh, And they say, in or near Mesa, Arizona, preferably. And then there's a little smiley face, which I love. For specifically trans youth, um, I, the, the hands down, the best organization in Arizona that I can recommend um, would be AZ Typo, Mm -hmm. Arizona uh, Trans Youth and Parents Organization. That is their whole thing. They are only about trans youth, whether wherever they are on the on the gender spectrum, and they offer resources. They offer groups, and it's not just for the trans-identified youth themselves. It's for the entire family because when you know, with if if a sibling decides that they no longer want to identify as whatever it was they were identified as before. It affects everybody. And they, they do provide um, great support for the entire family in, you know, and, and have access to resources for anybody and everyone. Um, I, I don't think that they are specifically located in Mesa, but I believe that they do... I think they have a footprint in Mesa because Tammy I, I is, think is they, in Mesa. Right. I, I think they, I, yeah, I think they have something. I don't know that there's, the, the main office I don't think is in Mesa, but. Um, They'll find a way to connect. Right. Them. Like they, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So that is the, the best organization that I can recommend uh, for, for trans youth, hands down. We had a couple other fun trivia flashcards, basically, about <laughs> first major drag venue, first drag queen in Arizona, and we covered that. Actually, so perfect. Yeah, so that's all the listener questions. Listener questions. That's all the audience questions. <laughs> uh, if you're if you're listening on the podcast, then that's uh, you didn't get to ask questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. But yeah, thanks so much to all of you again. Thanks to everyone in the audience, and thanks to all of you for listening to this first episode of Ask Smart People Smart Questions, a podcast discussion series from Equality Arizona. Ask Smart People Smart Questions is hosted by Gene Woodbury, that's me, and produced by Jeff Love. Future topics for the show will include ranked choice voting, religious perspectives, neurodiversity, experiences in the criminal justice system, and more. So if you want to keep up with everything we've got coming up, subscribe to the feed and make sure to come out to one of our live recordings at the Tempe Public Library. For more information about Equality Arizona, visit equalityarizona.org.